It's always a joy to be able to uh, preach God's word when I have the opportunity. And I think it's important for us to remember that every single time that we gather on Sunday, that it is a gift from God, that every single day is not guaranteed. And so when we come here every week, it's not just a routine thing. It's the gathering of the saints to worship God and praise God that we still have opportunities to do that. But today, we are looking at a difficult text that will lead us ultimately to the most important question that you will ever answer in your entire life. And that question is, who is Jesus? See, if you surveyed a hundred strangers at Target with this question, you would get a variety of different answers and probably a lot of different looks. And if the idea of talking to a hundred strangers at Target terrifies you, then just imagine posting this on social media and imagine all of the different questions and maybe even debates that you would get to this simple question. See, last week we ended with the calling of the 12 apostles, and I'm really happy that Pastor Chris tied it in with this next session, section pretty well because he took the time to show us what happened to these men. He showed us that after they had followed after Jesus, after they had made up their mind of who Jesus is, they were so committed to their answer that they were willing to be murdered for it. That is life transformation that they were so committed to the reality of what they believed about Jesus that they weren't willing to give up anything or recant. They were willing to lose their life because they were so changed by the reality of who Jesus is. And so we're continuing today in our Just Jesus series as we work our way through the book of Mark. And this sermon series is a great reminder. I know we say it every single week, but it's a reminder that Jesus is truly all we need for all we face is that might be hard for some of you to believe, is that maybe these new orders and these new things that have changed are causing you to have concern over your job or your future. But the reality is, is that through all of that, Jesus is truly all that we need. So today we're in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and you can start turning in there. The text is sometimes referred to as the lunatic liar or Lord passage. See, C.S. Lewis, the famous apologist and writer, made these terms more well-known when he was talking about the rise of people wanting to say that Jesus was simply a good teacher or a good man. But C.S. Lewis rejected that idea because Jesus himself declared that he was God. So you can't just take that and then say, oh, he was just a good teacher. And here is the quote from Lewis, he says, he is either a lunatic on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, or he is a liar at such a calculated and clever and extreme level as to probably be unequaled as a purveyor of deception, or he is Lord. But forget the patronizing nonsense that he is a good teacher. That's not an option. So if you haven't turned there, turned there yet, just turn in your Bibles, Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 20 through 35. I'll pray one more time uh, that God would give us eyes to see this glorious truth as we unpack his word and that it would be fresh to us as we read it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
that you gave us your word in writing, that we can cling to this timeless truth that it will never fade away, that in a world where everything will fade away, we can cling to these words. And so we ask you, Jesus, to give us eyes to see, that you would humble us to a point where we would recognize that we don't know you like we need to know you. We ask, Jesus, that you would use your word to change hearts, that we would see you for who you truly are, and that we would avoid the temptation to uh, skirt past difficult verses and difficult conversation. Amen. So Mark 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about as those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So there's a lot to unpack here. In reality, this could be a lot of messages, and there's going to be some things that we cover that you're going to say that we could have gone deeper. But I believe that there is an overarching theme through this whole text that there are a lot of different thoughts on who Jesus is. There's a lot of disagreement even in these verses between these groups of people. And so it's important for us to remember as we go into this that Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30. So this means that there was 30 years of life until all of these events happened to ultimately declare Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And this is a lot to to take in for the people who have known him his whole life. Imagine being his, his brother's, spending 30 years with him, growing up with him, working with him, and then one day, he declares that he's God. One day, he comes out and says, no, I'm God, the time is fulfilled, the mission is ready, and I'm going forth to bring the gospel. See, the first point we see in this text, and when we look, look at the question, who is Jesus, is ultimately that his family thought Jesus was crazy, that he was going crazy. See, Mary knew what was going to happen to Jesus. Uh, She was pretty involved 
an angel came to visit her and let her know that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. And she did, and she heard all of the different promises, but his brothers, and most likely the rest of his family, did not know or believe in him as the promised one of God who came to reconcile man to God. See, they thought of Jesus as their brother, and most likely they had worked together in the family business, like I had said, and had countless memories and meals together. And we know that ultimately from the word that Jesus is perfect, that he was a perfect sinless man, and that would have been hard to deal with as a fallen sinful brother. But at this point, where we're at now in verses 20 and 21, Jesus had gained quite the following. It wasn't just this moment where Jesus went down and was baptized by John and declared this. That they could maybe push aside. But now he is going from town to town, declaring this truth, casting out demons, healing people, and crowds are following him wherever he goes. They couldn't get enough of Jesus. They wanted more and more of him. They had never heard a teacher like Jesus before. He wasn't like the scribes and Pharisees who just kind of spoke with an empty religious way. He wasn't like anybody they had known before. And so as this following is rapidly growing, opinions are spreading throughout all of the area about who Jesus truly is. Jesus isn't the first one to rise up as the Messiah. He isn't the first one to claim that he is God, but this time it's different. And so all of these people are following him, people who are amazed at the miracles, people who are true followers and actually believe what Jesus is saying, and then also deniers and scoffers. So he finally makes his way back to his home, and he can't even sit down for a meal because the crowd keeps pressing into him and pursuing him. And it was at this point that his family had had enough. They were concerned for Jesus, and it's important that we don't read verse 21, which says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind, that we don't read this as a burst of anger or outrage by his brothers. It's not like they're sitting there and realizing that, oh, he's at it again, but read it in the way of a concerned and loving family member, that they want to protect their brother from himself because they don't really know who he truly is. They don't know at this point that Jesus is the Lord, the only begotten son, and they think that he has genuinely lost his mind. They want to bring him home before he causes more harm to himself or before he causes embarrassment to their family. They don't want the whole village talking about, oh, have you heard about the carpenter's son who's lost his mind? So they were going to go seize him, force him to bring him back home. And, and I think it, it comes to us as a reminder that one of the reminders that we live in a broken world is the fact that our mind can fail us. And so if you've ever gone through that difficulty of, of losing a a loved one who was starting to lose their memory, you know that it's one of the most heartbreaking and painful things to go through. You desperately wish that you could just bring them back to their old self, that they would see things clearly. And so his family thought that since he was losing his mind, that maybe he, had, that he could just come back home. Maybe he didn't really know what he was saying. Maybe he didn't really know what he was doing. Maybe if he got more sleep and he could actually eat a meal and, and take a nap, maybe he'd wake up the next day and realize that he isn't who he says that he is. But we know that later that this belief changed, is that two of his brothers, James and Jude, were so transformed by the realization that Jesus is the Lord that they go on to write the epistle, James and Jude, 
after their names, and they open their letters not with, oh, and by the way, Jesus is my brother, but instead they go with the declaration that they are servants of Jesus. Their eyes were open to the truth that Jesus is the Lord. But this next section that we're going to go to is, is even sadder. It's, it's not the case for the scribes that we will see. Um, the second point is that the scribes thought that Jesus was a liar. And so we'll read 22 through, actually 23 through 30. But the scribes had a very different approach to Jesus in this passage. It's not the loving yet misguided attempt to care for Jesus like his family, but instead it's a deliberate attempt to discredit the work that Jesus had done. They came with the bold accusation that Jesus is only able to do what he is doing because he is possessed by the devil. And that's why he casts out demons. And so as they are saying this, they're coming to the realization that they're saying that the miraculous work of God that was done through Jesus, they're declaring that it was actually done by the devil. So verse 23, it says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, Jesus is asking this question to them to really unpack for them the logic of what they're saying. They're saying to them that, no, this is the work of the devil, and Jesus is trying to show them that their accusation is at best misunderstanding and illogical, but at worst it could be a blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And he warns them of this, which is called by many the unforgivable sin. See, if you're going to go through a series, this is one of the passages that you don't really want to get picked for. Because for many of us, this passage has kind of haunted us in some ways. Is that as you read through the Gospels and you get to this point, there's many of us who, including myself, who starts to ask this question, did I do what Jesus said here? Am I beyond forgiveness? See, in verse 28, it says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. See, I believe Jesus is giving a firm warning here of the seriousness of what they could be doing. See, it's not certain if right now he's declaring, you have crossed the line, you have now committed the unforgivable sin, and there is no turning back for you but he wants to remind them of the seriousness of the path that they could be going on. And for us, it's important for us to take a step back and, and really unpack the reality of how dangerous sin is. This is very serious, and it's why Jesus warns us that they're entering into a point where eventually there could be no turning back, where there could be no more repentance. And these verses are sobering to me is that as I studied and prepared, it's the weightiness of sin, how it destroys and in some cases leads to eternal destruction. And these verses unpack two main things. And since I'm not very clever, the main things are 
The first one, that all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. And secondly, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So you can seem like these back-to-back verses are in contradiction to each other. See, in verse 28, Jesus says, no, all sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies they utter. And then he says in 29, but if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there will never be forgiveness. So in verse 28, it declares all sins will be forgiven, whatever, whatever blasphemies. And as we unpack the truth of the scriptures, we see that there is no forgiveness apart from repentance. This is one of the hard things of the Christian faith, and it's not talked about a lot. Sometimes we can, we can overlook it, is that repentance is the thing that we need to do to actually be forgiven. We need to recognize that we are broken and sinful and we desperately need Jesus to cleanse us. But what does it actually look like to repent of our sin? It means that you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit to repent of your sin, to to recognize your sin and to ask forgiveness from God. And when you trust in his saving work, that he will extend mercy and grace to you. I know that a lot of us, our eyes can start to glaze over when we start to think about that or talk about that. And you say, no, I learned that in Sunday school when I was six. But we don't recognize the weight of how bad our sin is and how good Jesus is. See, the difference between verse 28 and 29 is that there is a brokenness and a conviction over the sins that have been committed. So that if you wake up and you realize that once again you have sinned again and you're broken, and it leads you to repentance, you have not gone into verse 29 level yet. You are still soft to the Spirit, and the Spirit is showing you that you have sinned and you need Jesus. See, the unforgivable sin is not something that is carelessly stumbled over. It's not an accidental thing. It's not something that you said when you were 12 when your parents made you mad. It is a consistent hardening of the heart. It is not a flippant statement, a flippant word, but a finalization of the hardening that leads to a point where there is no more repentance. It is a complete rejection of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that should sober us. See, I think a good story that goes along with this comes from a pastor, and it's disturbing, but it's important for us to recognize See, it was late at night, and he received the call that a pastor never wants to receive. It's 3.30 in the morning, and somebody in his church is dying. And so he gets up, he gets dressed, he makes his way to the hospital, and the doctor lets him know, I don't think he's going to make it through the night. And so the pastor goes into the room, and, and he talks to the man, the man that he's known for many years, and he asks him, how is your relationship with Jesus? And the man responded, I have always believed in God, and I know that everything between me and him is ship-shape. Everything's good. The pastor, concerned by his answer, asks again, but well, what do you believe about Jesus? And the man responds, well, I know God all my life. I've known him my whole life. I've, I've tried to observe godly standards. I've been honest in my business, and I've worked really hard. And the pastor continues to press. He says, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't your friend. So give me a straight answer to my question. How is it between you and Jesus? And the man responded, I've never made a place in my life for Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. 
If I were to believe in Jesus, it would upset everything in my philosophy and my life, and I would have to rethink everything about myself. And the pastor said, then by God's grace, you have time to rethink that. And the man responded with words that were really hard for me to process as I read this story. He says, no, I will die without Jesus. And the pastor continued to press in. He said, why then do you think Jesus died? And the man responded, oh, I understand why he died. He died for sins. And the pastor asked, your sins? And the man responded, perhaps, but it's too late in my life to rethink that. It's too late for me to rethink the place of Jesus in my life. And sadly, that man died, knowing what Jesus had done and still rejecting Jesus. Like I said, this is not an easy thing to talk about. It's not the, the message that you want to pull, but Jesus is telling us the truth here that there does come a point where somebody will still reject all the way until the end. Is that there is only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be with God, and that is through repenting of our sins and trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how good you are. The man was deceived. He thought because he was good and because he was ethical and he ran his business like a Christian man should, that that is good enough. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how much you give or how much you sacrifice because we are all broken and sinful and we could never reconcile ourselves to God. It's important for us to recognize that who Jesus is giving this warning to. He's warning the scribes. He's saying this to the scribes, the most religious people among them. See, most scribes were Pharisees, which means that they weren't just religious. They didn't just keep the rules. They made new rules. Not only were they satisfied with keeping the whole law, they wanted to add more to the law. They are the most religious person that you would ever meet. Start to think about the most religious person you've ever met in your life, and the scribes and the Pharisees would make them look like the rest of us. And as we unpack this, they, they don't get it. Is that they're filled with their self-righteousness. They would not be offended by the statement that they were self-righteous. They are the very people who are eventually going to plot to kill Jesus. Is that they may have looked religious and righteous on the outside, but we see throughout the Gospels that they were filled with hypocrisy and greed. They wanted to squash Jesus' credibility is that as his movement started to grow, they started to lose the power they always had, and it was a scary thing for them. The very people who claim to be closest to God are seeking to destroy God in the flesh. And this warning to them is a very serious warning, is that they are on the verge of rejecting the work of God and claiming that it's the work of the devil. But this passage should be an encouraging reminder that if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, that you can get forgiveness. Is that if you have truly repented, you can take a deep breath and know that verse 29 is not about you. Verse 29 is not this reminder that sits in the back of your head that, oh, maybe it wasn't good enough. Maybe I did actually fall into this and maybe I am rejected by God. See, if you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit to repent and believe, then you have done what needs to be done is that you can rest in the truth that God has forgiven you and that you are a child of God. But that this passage is also a warning to the good person. 
the one who thinks that they have done enough good works, the one who thinks that they have donated enough to charity. And we have to go and look at Romans 3, verse 10, that says, none is righteous, no, not one. Or 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, ultimately, there is only one name by which we are saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Don't trust in anything else. And I say this to you as a sinful man who's been saved by a gracious Savior, is that my hope is built on Jesus, not on my good works. No religious service will ever save me. And so if you believe that God is calling you to repent and trust in him, today can be the day. Don't wait or harden your heart because this passage warns all of us of the insidious nature of sin, how it eats inside of us and how it tears us apart and eventually ruins us. See, the enemy is working hard to deceive us, to say that we actually don't need to repent of our sins. We actually don't need a savior. If we can just continue to work ourselves and continue to be good people, then we will be fine. But sin doesn't always look like a blatant, drunken, scandalous sin. Sometimes it is a self-righteous hypocrisy. And so this should drive all of us to our knees. And I know that this is an intense passage, but it should drive us all to our knees in prayer that God would change our hearts, that we would continually be soft to our sin that we would be broken over our sin and that we would pray and that we would plead for those who we know haven't trusted in Jesus. See, a point of application here is not to start to make a list of the people we think have committed the unforgivable sin. I think the point of this should drive us to plead with God to save those who we know who don't know Jesus. The family member who doesn't want to talk about this the friend who is sick and tired of you talking about the gospel, the one who doesn't want to hear how your life has been changed. And I understand, I've been there. I know what it's like to get yelled at by a best friend who says, dude, just stop with all the Jesus stuff. But ultimately, if we believe that this word is true, there is only one way for them to be saved. And only the Holy Spirit can do it. And so it should drive us to our knees that we plead for salvation for those who don't know Jesus. Don't be satisfied with them just being a good person. And I've fallen into this trap. Some of the best, kindest, most loving people in my life are not believers, but those who think because they are good, they are right with God. See, we all fall short. It doesn't matter if you're a buttoned-up good person or you are a wretched, openly sinful person. We desperately need Jesus. And so his family at the beginning of the passage, they think he's crazy. The scribes think he's a liar. And then ultimately the third point, the last section of the passage, his followers knew that he was Lord. See, verse 31 says, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. See here, Jesus is not disrespecting his family. See, something that I should have explained at the beginning is 
that really there's a sandwich of a story. His family's on his way to go seize him. He has this interaction with the scribes, and now his family has arrived to call for him. And in this moment, instead of calling out to his family and saying, come on in, he wants to make it clear who actually is in the family of God. See, Jesus' death and resurrection opened up reconciliation to all people, something that did not take place until when Jesus came. And so anybody who trusts in Jesus is now a part of the family, and this is a huge deal because this culture is all about bloodline. It's all about family history. It's all about what tribe do you come from? And are you Jewish? And are you fully Jewish? See, it's not a specific group of people, and he wants them to know that to be in the family of God, you don't need to trace back your ancestry to me. You don't need to be my cousin or my brother or my long-lost cousin. Instead, you need to trust in me. And when you trust in Jesus, you're adopted into that family. And this is good news for us. See, if you're, if you're like me, there's, there's not a whole lot of things that I can point to that says, well, I come from royalty, I come from a family that's made all the right decisions, and we have lots of money. See, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your vocation or your past. It's all because of what Jesus has done. And that's the beautiful thing, that we are his brother or his sister because of what he's done. And so when we come to that glorious day in heaven and we all sit at the feast, we will look around at a bunch of people and the only reason they're there is because they've trusted in Jesus. And so it's important that we don't rush past this because there is something here to see is that it's a sign or a fruit of the Spirit that they're doing the will of God. See, it's the Spirit of God inside of you that drives you to do the will of God. I think that's the, one of the great things is that it's not even our, our sin that it's changed, but then it's the fact that once we are changed by Jesus, he's continuing to change us. See, I love this series, not just because it's fun to go through a book from beginning to end, but I love this because every single time it points us back to Jesus, how much we need Jesus, that if it weren't for Jesus, I would be completely different. My life, there's a lot of times where I sit back and I think, if Jesus didn't grab a hold of me then, I don't even want to know where I would be today. Because it's a sobering reality that I would certainly be hopeless and I would certainly be chasing after the things that would never, ever make me happy. And so I hope that you know that if you take one thing away from this, that the greatest thing that can happen to you is a relationship with Jesus, a life transformation with him. So that every day I wake up to the reminder that I am broken and that I am sinful and that I am selfish, but that I have a Lord who is gracious and who is merciful and who is loving and he forgives me. And in all of this brokenness, one day he will make all things right. And so the most important question that you'll have to answer in your life is who is Jesus? And ultimately to take it a little bit further, who is Jesus to you? What do you actually believe about Jesus and why do you believe that? Is that there's a scary reality that there's a lot of people who claim to know God and know Jesus but don't know his word. They don't know who he truly is. People who would profess to know Jesus and to be a Christian but actually reject teachings of his word. See, Jesus is not who we make him out to be. We can't create our own version of Jesus. 
We can't make a Jesus that's easier to take in, a more socially acceptable Jesus that we can all agree with. Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. And so I want to close with this passage. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 23, Paul writes about who Jesus is. He is the, invi- he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So really there's two groups of people, those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus. And so if you know Jesus, rejoice that you're in the family of God. Rejoice that the Spirit of God has softened your heart, that you are convicted over your sin, and that you trust in Jesus' work. Rejoice that he has saved you, and ultimately take that testimony to the world. Let people know why you actually believe what you believe and why you actually have hope and why you actually cling to this and that you've depended all of your eternity on this. But if you're not a Christian, you're not sure about who you think Jesus is and maybe this message has made it way more confusing, I want to let you know, myself or any of the pastors, we'd love to talk with you about Jesus, what the Bible tells us about Jesus, how Jesus has changed our life, how we've changed the whole direction of our life because of what we actually believe about Jesus, because we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's only by him that we're saved. So let's rejoice in that church, and let's pray.